Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome, and thanks for joining us for a conversation on financing a smooth and sustainable transition as we all work towards a net zero target by 2050. The fight against climate change has entered a new stage. Action around the transition to a lower carbon world involves an increasing number of parts and begs the question, how can we ensure that it's equitable and smooth and that we don't sacrifice parts of society and industry as our companies, large and small, move towards a net zero world. Today, we will extend our conversation on ESG and sustainability to how this transition to a lower carbon footprint affects the natural resource companies as corporates map their transition toward net zero and the banks and industry's role in financing the transition. Today, I'm joined by three great guests. Martha Hall Finley, Chief Sustainability Officer at Suncor, Caitlin McLean, Senior Director of Innovation Finance at the Milken Institute, and Jonathan Hackett, Managing Director and Head of BMO Sustainable Finance Group. Today, we're gonna to bring to life three distinct perspectives. The need for innovation, moving beyond traditional examples of sustainable energy, wind and solar, to looking at new ways for carbon reduction. Helping finance innovation from pilot stage to rubber generating commercial stage projects the collaboration between public and private sectors, how do we assist in financing the change, the socioeconomic of climate change, and how financial institutions can accelerate this transition. We've been looking at new ways to finance. BMO has been leading the way with sustainable finance commitments. BMO is committed to advance our client sustainability objectives by mobilizing 300 billion in capital to clients to pursue sustainable outcomes through green, social, and sustainable lending, underwriting and advisory services, and investment by 2025. As we get started, I'll remind you of our BMO disclosures uh, attached to the web link enclosed and at the bottom of the invitation you received. Additionally, we have media interest in the session, so there'll be reporters on the line. As we look to start, I'd like to highlight that today, June 1st, marks Natural Indigenous History Month a time for Canadians to celebrate and honor the history, heritage, and diversity of Indigenous peoples in Canada. Following the recent tragic and painful news regarding the remains of 215 children found at the Kamloops Indian Residential School, our thoughts are with the families, communities, and Indigenous peoples impacted across the country. Let's start a conversation with Martha. Suncor is an example of a company that's leading the change in the energy sector and a commitment to sustainability that runs right to the top. Martha, it's great to have you here today. Thanks, Dan, so much. Uh, thanks for the, the for the welcome, for the invitation. Um, if I can just say, uh, just following on your comments about the bodies of the kids that were found, um, I, I've noticed a lot of reaction about the 215, and I and I just really want to reemphasize that the tragic events affected so many kids. 
Um, so when we remember the 215, I, I, you know, it's so important that we remember everyone that, 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 uh, including kids who other kids who were killed, uh, who died, who were abused and the family tragedies that ensued. So I just wanted to make that it, it's a reminder. It's not an event in and of itself. Um, uh, but to the issue uh, at hand for today's panel. Um, I, uh, I am indeed the Chief Sustainability Officer for Suncor. Um, uh, just to put things into context, Suncor is referred to by a number of people around the world as a tar sands company. Uh, we don't use that term because it's, a you know, for, for some obvious reasons, but um, being the Chief Sustainability Officer for a company that produces oil out of the um, oil sands is an interesting, it's an interesting job. Um, but I took it for a very for a number of, of, of reasons that are very future and forward looking, and I'm really excited about where we're going to go. So let me just, you know, Suncor is 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 uh, is that, but it's all and it's also other things. So I often say, you know, we're an oil company, but and I catch myself and I say, no, no, we're an oil company. We're Canada's leading energy company, um, and. And we're actually really proud of what we do. We're really proud of the company that we are. We're really proud of how we do things. Just to remind people, you know, it wasn't that long ago, a few decades ago, people said there's no way you can get oil out of that sand. And uh, what ensued were some pretty amazing technological innovations, um, you know, techno wizardry, if you will. People said there's no way you can do that. And people showed that they could. And it took investment, it took smarts, it took creativity, it took investment, both public and private, a lot of it. And over the decades, what happened was extraordinary from uh, success in terms of business, but also economic prosperity for not only the region of Alberta, but the um, add-on economic prosperity of, of all of the businesses that support the, the economic activity that ensued. So it's been, it's been a, a tremendous success. And then, and, and was always regarded as such. And then a number of years ago, when the issues associated with climate change became more clear, um, you know, so many people ended up being vilified. You know, all these people who, who would work so hard to develop something that they thought was pretty cool and was addressing some real needs. Um, and it's tough. I have to say it's tough because no one set out to do bad things, right? And and as an oil company, we're still providing a product that is in major demand around the world. And I do want to talk about that in a few minutes, but just to just um, Suncor itself. So it's Canada's leading energy company. Um, we are an oil sands company. We uh, also upgrade, we refine, we distribute, we refine here and in the United States. We have refineries uh, in Ontario, Quebec and, and in the States. We do offshore, so we have offshore operations uh, east coast of Canada as well as Norway, the UK. Um, we have a, a full-on distribution network, so our Petro Canada network is is certainly uh, 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 sort of the Canadian um, uh, retail network. We have almost five million. Uh, members of our Petro Points, Petro Canada Points. Uh, it's one of Canada's largest loyalty programs. So we have a lot of engagement with customers, with industrial con customers, commercial customers, and end user uh, retail customers. Um, one thing of note that an awful lot of people still don't know, which I'm very proud of, is that we, through our Petro Canada uh, network, we established and built 
the backbone of an electric highway. So, you know, they'll be added on, but right now you can actually drive coast to coast with an electric vehicle. And recognizing that range anxiety is one of the biggest detriments or one of the biggest barriers to buying electric vehicles, knowing that you can actually drive, now, not coast to coast, not coast to coast to coast, there aren't even roads uh, uh, to, to much of our northern coastline, but it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. And uh, having stations that are maximum 250 kilometers apart allows that to happen. And so we're pretty pleased. We're pretty excited. And that's an example of where we recognize that consumer choice is a really important important part of the solution, right? Like if nobody, if if if, if people have no choice but to, to drive an internal combustion car, and that will be the case for an awful lot of people around the world for a long time to come. Just saying, um, but certainly in in the more developed countries where we have those opportunities, that's that's a great thing to be a part of. I do I do want to talk, and and we have over thirty thousand. Um, team members at Suncor. So it's a pretty big company. And we're uh, really excited about the future. We've been doing sustainability actually for a long time. Um, we've supported a carbon price for over 20 years. We have engaged with our, when we talk about ES&G, um, really proud of our engagement with ind Indigenous communities. And there's no question, you know, we, we're on a path and um, you never do it perfectly. You never do anything perfectly. But we're really proud over over 20 years of going from uh, significant employment of Indigenous folks in, in the Suncor team to procurement to uh, last year, even with COVID, our procurement went was of Indigenous products and services from Indigenous uh, companies was almost 10% of Suncor's entire procurement spend. Don't you don't even want to know how that compares, you know, how the federal government procurement spend uh, uh, compares. It doesn't very well, I would say, but we're really very proud of that because it's the economic reconciliation. It's the economic uh, uh, prosperity that is critical. So in moving uh, from uh, employment to procurement of products and services to uh, in in more recent times full on equity partnerships and you know fingers crossed we have something else that'll that'll be announced fairly soon very excited about so so all of those things we've been you know in terms of disclosure we've been you know we have TCFD we have GRI we have SASB we have all of those things that we've been complying with for years. Um, we've actually won awards in terms of disclosure, which is something else we're really proud of. But fundamentally, it's performance. Fundamentally, we have a really big challenge ahead of us. Um, you know, and Dan, you talked about the, the lower carbon footprint. And I, I do what I can to remind people it's actually not the carbon that's the problem. It's the emissions. Um, we produce an awful lot of oil that goes to petrochemicals, that goes to other products, that goes to your, yes, North Face uh, sweatshirt, um, uh, an awful asphalt, an awful lot of products that use carbon uh, very effectively that are not, not uh, a problem from a climate change perspective. It is emissions that are a problem. And I'm not going to lie, we're obviously a really big emitter. Um, but on a personal level, I mean, I've been a solar power user for 20 years. So when we when when we talk over the course of this session about um, where we're going in the future, my view is 
Rea reality and pragmatism are absolutely critical. There's no question I hear a, a bit of naivety out there. I am um, the International Energy Agency report that just came out a week or so ago. You know, yeah, there's a pathway to net zero. But if you read the report, part of that would include building a new solar panel farm, uh, a new solar farm the size of currently the world's biggest every single day. I mean, let's let's talk about is that in fact realistic um, in terms of money, in terms of acreage, in terms of transmission, in terms of storage. I mean, there are this is not going to be easy. And so one of the things that we're also really looking at is, of course, storage. And we look at the Northern Lights project in, in Norway that involves a number of big producers. Uh, we're looking at the big CCUS project, by the way. This It's piping CO2 under the sea to storage under the sea. A major, major multi-billion euro announcement from the Dutch government involving a couple of other major producers. Very interesting to see. Um, there's no question in Canada we're looking very carefully at what we might be able to do from a CCUS perspective because Alberta is actually regarded as one of the world's best locations for, for storage in terms of pore space. So we're looking at that. There is no shame in looking at how do we store emissions? How do we store um, uh, the CO2? Because if it's the, if it's the, the nearest most logical and realistic approach to dealing with this problem, then my view is we need to look at it. Um, I'll finish off with some of the other opportunities. So we, uh, Suncor is a supporter of the, the, um, the XPRIZE as a member of, of the uh, Canadian Oil Sands uh, Industry Alliance. Um, the winner that was just announced is Carbon Cure, or one of the two winners just uh, announced Carbon Cure. And uh, really interesting um, technologies in terms of actually storing CO2, but in the process making better concrete. And uh, those are the kinds of things that I think are really interesting. And I really do hope we can talk a little bit more about you know, how we deal with climate change in the larger context of global sustainability, global prosperity, um, the development of the developing world, and not just from a wealthy country perspective. Um, I think uh, I really like your reality and pragmatism theme. Uh, that to me is probably one of the strongest uh, challenges we have today as we think about, uh, you know, real outcomes. Uh, I often hear uh, people thinking about simple issues or simple solutions. And, you know, the complexity of how energy interweaves through all of our economy uh, and what it means for our prosperity as a nation uh, and for the globe, I think, is, is critical uh, and something that we force a transition that cause a different outcome of, uh, of economic failure is not, is not sustainable uh, in, in that thought process. And I think it's a, it's a wise set of words on reality and pragmatism. Uh, I'm very encouraged when I, I think about some of the progress that Suncor has made. Uh, you know, we could go on for hours, I think, uh, in the seriousness that Suncor takes to this and then all of the places where Suncor is innovating. Uh, I think about how you're actually running uh, the operations today, uh, dramatically different from a footprint than it was three, four years ago, uh, which is very different than a decade ago. Uh, I think about the way you're thinking about energy intensity. Uh, I think about, uh, there was a study out a couple of weeks ago on particulate matter. And so other areas that we think about emissions, not just carbon, uh, and impact on the economy. 
uh, and efficiency through it. So I'm, I'm actually giving your own examples. I shouldn't do that. I should say, Martha, uh, tell us about some of the other aspects when you think about the innovation that Suncor has brought uh, to the question of sustainability. Well, there's, I mean, we're investing, have invested and continue to invest in some really interesting technologies for sure. Um, I mean, we, we're an investor in Anarchem, which converts municipal waste into fuel. Because the, the other part of this is recognizing that the global infrastructure for energy is very fuel-based, right? Um, it's going to be a long time before we have electric vehicles as, as the only option. Um, you know, internal combustion vehicles are going to be around for a long time. And even when the wealthy world ends up moving into EVs, where do you think they go? I mean, they're, they're, there's, there's going to be a lot of, of demand, but they are, they are fuel-based. So to the extent that we can do more in terms of biofuels, then, then we're using existing infrastructure, existing infrastructure that uses fuel to heat homes. Um, it's really important to recognize that you can't, you, you just can't change that infrastructure overnight. So whatever we do that actually looks at new versions of fuels. So for example, we just announced a, um, a major project um, that we're hoping to do with ATCO um, in, in Alberta uh, with respect to hydrogen. So Suncor is one of the, the can, maybe the biggest hydrogen producer in Canada. Um, we need a lot of hydrogen for our upgrade for refining processes. But um, ATCO produces a lot of natural gas for home heating. Well, there's an opportunity to use some of that hydrogen, and especially if we combine it with carbon capture and storage, then it becomes blue hydrogen, clean hydrogen, and that can actually help render cleaner the natural gas uh, mix that is used to heat to heat homes, but that's using existing infrastructure. But so that's really interesting. We've invested in, in Lanza Tech, we've invested in Lanza Jet, which is biofuels for jets, which is also, man, we, it, you know, we figure out how to actually have clean fuels for jets because they're not gonna fly in electricity anytime soon. Um, then we're making real change. Um, you know, I mentioned Carbon Cure. Uh, we've also invested in Savante, which is uh, a new form of carbon uh, ca uh, capture, which could, has some really interesting potential. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm a, like I said, I've been a solar user for 20 years personally. I am a, co a convert. I don't know why most houses and buildings don't have solar panels. That said, um, that is not the only answer. We have to be able to address the realities of global demand. We have to be able to understand that huge millions of people in India still cook and, and heat with cow dung, which is absolutely filthy and terrible for you talk about particulates, right? It's, it's, it ain't healthy. Um, so how do we help developing, we globally, how do we help developing countries you, move to uh, economic prosperity, because we know energy access to affordable, accessible energy is a critical component. It's absolutely inextricably entwined, entwined with prosperity. So how do we how do we not tell the rest of the world, the developing world, too bad, so sad? You know, we had a, a decade of cheap, affordable, easily transportable and easily used fuel as in oil. But you can't you can't. So I'm not. So we have to be. We have to look at this from a global perspective. We have to look at it from what are the existing infrastructures that we can continue to use, hence the biofuels. 
um, while also looking at the renewable alternatives, the increasing um, you know price points of wind and and solar for sure, um, you know all the work that's going into electricity storage, all of that. But it's a mix, and and there's no question we at Suncor are really excited about looking at all of those things because we're an energy company and we plan to be a successful energy company for a long time to come. I, uh, I love that. Um, why don't we try and bring Caitlin into the conversation? And uh, I think we we're gonna have her talk to us a little bit about uh, some of the work that the Milken Institute's done. But Martha, over to you for that. No, I think Caitlin, over to Caitlin for that. Over to Caitlin. <laughs> Yes, no problem. What Martha and I are gonna are gonna quiz each other later. Um, yes, thank you, Dan. Thank you to to you and to the BMO team, uh, longtime partners, and really uh, value your collaboration and obviously your thought leadership. Also, really appreciate uh, a, a team of Canadians allowing this New Yorker to be on this panel today. Um, really excited for the discussion. You know, the Milken Institute. For those who are not familiar, we're a financial and economic think tank. And as a think tank, we do kind of two core activities, probably most well known for the large convenings that we do, um, of which BMO has been a really great longtime collaborator, um, but we also do research. And so I oversee um, our applied research projects that we call our financial innovations labs. So really looking at how you create innovation in the investment opportunities that will then hopefully support innovation in things like new technologies. So we've been doing a project recently looking at the uh, ability for the capital markets to help provide really cost-effective financing for companies who are trying to make this transition to a more sustainable future, including having net zero targets. And it's interesting, you know, we've been interviewing probably 75 to 100 different corporates um, in the U.S. and in Canada and some in Europe as well, thinking about kind of what, where are the needs that they have in terms of their financing? What, what can they do on their own? Um, and where are there still some of those lingering challenges? Um, and so I would say just two things off the bat to, to keep with the realism theme that, that Martha um, and Dan, you've both talked about. You know, I think that as you as we've talked to corporates about what their net zero pledges look like, realistically, um, a very large percentage of those are based on offsets, right? So they're based on, um, you know, kind of thinking about uh, what might be possible in the future um, to to use and invest in to, to offset emissions. And so I think that just realistically, the amount of investment that's needed in technologies that don't exist yet, um, or some that are, as Martha was saying, um, on the cusp of commercialization, that's really important because I think that realistically, uh, most companies at this point do not have a path uh, to to a true net zero um, anytime soon with the existing technologies that we have. So I think that that's part of what we're looking at is, um, you know, what are those kind of new technologies? What is needed from a company perspective? And then how do um, investors play a role? And I think what we've seen in terms of, you know, kind of core themes there is that, you know, obviously investing in new technologies um, is risky. And so, you know, you don't always have institutional investors who are willing to take kind of early stage development risk. 
And so the question then becomes, you know, how do you facilitate better collaboration and partnership with investors, with technology companies, governments, and the corporates to say, you know, what are the what are the investment opportunities and the mechanisms through which um, everyone can can give a little, but then win a lot. And so I think, um, you know, we're seeing investors who obviously have their own sustainability mandates, um, are very interested in ESG, um, not yet necessarily always so flexible in terms of what they're willing to give up, though. So I think, you know, in in a lot of these conversations, we talk about what the corporates um, need to do. Energy companies, Martha just um, obviously mentioned quite a bit about what Suncor is doing. And at the same time, we do need to think about what investors are going to be willing to do themselves. Because you'll see that, you know, with the the growth of the green bond market, for example, um, that happens for a variety of reasons. Uh, the need for um, for for project financing for better projects, but also because a green bond fundamentally looks like a, a pure vanilla bond, right? So it's not very different for investors to actually put in their portfolio. And so I think we're, what we're trying to do is come up with um, sort of short, medium, and long term financing models that in the early stage can be kind of the path of least resistance, like a green bond uh, to get people into the market. But then you will have to see an evolution of, you know, something that looks maybe a bit like uh, riskier capital. If you're willing to put um, capital in earlier stages of the kind of technology development where maybe an investor wouldn't have done that before, but because they now see that that type of investment will help lower the carbon footprint of their overall portfolio, and maybe they're willing to look at their risk return profile a little bit differently. So we're starting to see that. We're starting to see some interesting kind of medium-term financing models. And then obviously, on the longer term, thinking about the role of of government and and policy, um, again, kind of talking earlier about disclosures and what uh, the European Union, uh, US and Canada are all doing um, in terms of trying to standardize and and, um, better streamline disclosures, um, especially around environmental and social factors. So I think, you know, we're we're optimistic about um, you know kind of the, the demand for uh, sustainable investment, alongside the very strong need that that companies and communities have to to really make that investment. As Martha said, it's it's fundamentally shifting all of our infrastructure uh, over the next uh, decades. So I think that um, you know we're just we're interested in kind of um, hearing from from. Uh, certainly the BMO side, as well as from Martha, you know, kind of where are their um, continued um, kind of challenges in terms of uh, reaching that financing? You know, one of the things that we've been talking to folks about is, you know, the, the role of tax equity financing. Are there um, alternative joint venture models? Are there um, uh, lessons learned from things like yield, co- yield codes for, um, you know, alternative technologies that aren't necessarily um, commercial? at commercial scale yet, but but might be uh, revenue generating um, enough where you could securitize some type of pool. Um, we're going through a whole host of, of um, financing models and kind of testing and kicking the tires to see what would work um, and what doesn't. But I think, you know, the, the question, um, as I said, is really, uh, I guess, for, for Martha as well, 
is, you know, where are there opportunities where um, the the corporate side um, and the energy side can really work with investors, again, in a way that maybe is a path of least resistance at this moment uh, before they're really willing to um, shift their kind of risk return profile and can we help to kind of design, further design some of those investments to make them more standardized, to scale them up to the you know ticket size that investors need to really allocate capital um, and actually just really scale these, these technologies that are needed to get companies realistically to a path for net zero? Yeah, I think, Caitlin, you raised a bunch of uh, really interesting foundational issues, right? <clears throat> the first off is... Uh, today, we have investors who are changing their fundamental mandate uh, from making money or making the highest returns to my highest returns actually have to have a social consequence and social broadly defined. So ESG, if you like, uh, which I think is a very fundamental change in the investing market that's already happening or happened even when I think about how many large investors today don't have an ESG requirement uh, to how they invest. I think it's very, very few. The second is, and I think it's a really interesting one, we have actually never seen this much capital mobilized for innovation uh, in our lifetimes. Uh, And when I give you some examples, think about how we're evaluating the EV trucks that still have never put a truck on the ground and have billions raised and billions of opportunities. And so, you know, I actually think the amount of money going into innovation is extraordinarily high uh, and is well-founded. And I think we all understand the basic fundamentals of investing is you have to make money and uh, eventually. And so it's the construct of how do you make money and how do you get there? Uh, But we're in a world where I would even argue 24 months ago, people couldn't see a future where the innovation was required and that the opportunity was there. And today I think it's changed materially. Uh, And it sounds like your uh, surveys are uh, yielding very, very similar results. Um, Maybe take a few minutes and just talk about some of the uh, corporate feedback you got on public policy and how public policy needs to be thoughtful or tweaked or innovated. Uh, and then I think we can go to Martha and, and really clue in on some of the things she's seeing as well. Different governments are doing different things around the world, obviously. So Definitely. And I, I do think that just on the, the first point that you made in terms of um, investors fundamentally need to make money, it, very true, obviously. Um, I think that, that what we're seeing from the investor um, perspective and the shift there is that it's also about not wanting to lose money in the long run right so i under so it's there's there is a shift of thinking about um, apart from just kind of the traditional kind of pushback around sort of stranded assets and things like that is really looking at you know kind of what are the um the overall kind of environmental impact of a portfolio and should you be willing to be more flexible on when you get paid back, right? When or what, either the time horizon or um, the frequency through which you are getting paid back um, to to really um, offset some of the risk um, of potential loss in your portfolio. So I do think that there's um, there is a bit of a shift there. We have a ways to go, um, and part of that involves the second part of your question, which is public policy. So, you know, I think that we've. We've been focusing quite a bit with the corporates on, you know, what is the most effective um, menu of options that that public policy can provide, whether those are carrots or sticks. And I think that we've seen, you know, certainly on the carrot side, um, you know, 
uh, increasing the amount of um, tax credits available for financing. I think that that's um, obviously been um, a big component of of allowing more flexibility in terms of of capital structure. Um, but I also think that you know we've we've talked quite a bit with folks about effective things like loan guarantees, right? So effective loan guarantee programs um, from various governments in terms of what really makes sense and what is useful for a government to provide in terms of subsidies, in terms of um, insurance-like products and saying, you know, what what is really effective. So I think that we have found that um, it's certainly on kind of enabling more tax equity financing, I think the uh, kind of loan guarantee program as well, but also I think being more creative in terms of uh, off-taker agreements and what uh, the role of, of governments can be in trying to um, be that end buyer, be that that purchaser um, to give that stamp of approval, because governments do have perhaps a bit more flexibility in terms of time horizons and, and thinking about what they're willing to be flexible on. Um, and so I think that that's um, that I think that that's, you know, an important point for corporates as well is just kind of understanding, um, you know, kind of what what is going to enable them to develop and, and um, enable more of these technologies. I think that on the stick side is where there's there's still some questions, right, of, um, you know, certainly I think the disclosure component uh, to um, what the EU has put out in terms of their taxonomy um, and their policies certainly uh, will in hope, it hopefully be a game changer in terms of how companies report and then therefore how the data that we have now um, can really demonstrate some of this environmental impact and also really, uh, you know, kind of underscore the the risk and the opportunity um, that that companies are facing and therefore investors are facing as well. So I think that there's there's certain um, I think interest around kind of further um, regulation and policy on the disclosure side, especially for standardization purposes for investors. I think then you know the, the the next question is then what do you do um, moving forward and how much um, of a stick do you have moving forward in terms of really you know kind of regulating uh, certain industries um, obviously being based in the U.S. Um, and our headquarters are in California um, looking at things like cap and trade um, which has been successful in California thinking about kind of where we go from here and I think a lot of corporates that we've been talking to um, understand that that's a reality the question is going back to some of Martha's comments, you know, how do you make this a smooth transition and how are you realistic in terms of, of what the, the balance is between coming in really strong and early with, um, with regulations as opposed to being a bit more flexible. So I think we're, we're seeing um, quite a bit of, of interest in um, the role of policy. It's, it's not been um, please stay hands off. I think that there's, there's been a sense that from the corporates that that they do need help, um, and investors certainly are interested in in having that type of standardization. So I think that um, so so I, we're definitely seeing um, uh, a bit more collaboration, um, not across the board 100%. Again, being realistic, we're not seeing everyone want to collaborate, but I do think um, that there are corporates who are um, really stepping up. Um, so I mean, I guess maybe if I could ask Martha um, a question on on that front. Just to see, you know, again, kind of thinking about where policy um, can actually help enable more um, innovation for Suncor. As I mentioned, uh, you know, 
some of the corporates that we've been talking to, a lot of it is about the financing. So it's certainly about, um, you know, kind of providing some type of incentives or subsidies or things like that. But curious, as you guys are looking at the role of policy and, and where to go from here, is there are there one or two things that you really think would unlock more innovation um, to to really scale up from your side, whether it's, you know, kind of policy, pure policy, kind of procurement and things like that, or if it's on the financing side? That's a, it's a great question and it's a great challenge and I and I just uh, I, I would you know Dan you you mentioned the the risk and return and and that investors are are not willing to just go for return on its own they want high return and to feel good about it I'm paraphrasing what we're seeing is that we do not see investors who want to feel good about it and lose money or not make high return so that's a fundamental I mean we have this balance at Suncor all the time. We have investors who are saying, show me the money. Um, we are, we have, of course, there are investors that make headlines on, you know, desire for sustainability and ESG. But if you look carefully at a lot of their portfolios, yeah, but, but they recognize that th- this kind of transition is not going to happen with a couple million dollars for a startup. This kind of, which is awesome, don't get me wrong, but this kind of transition is going to take big companies and big governments and an awful lot of collaboration. I mean, we saw what just happened in terms of global vaccines. Not cheap, but something that was required to address a global challenge. Well, we're in a global, a different global challenge and we're going to have to have everybody stepping up. But this is the collaboration that I think, I mean, we saw this actually with COVID, a huge amount of collaboration, certainly Suncor and, you know, Air Canada and a bunch of other companies involved in this with the Creative Creative Destruction Lab out of U of T on rapid testing kits. And how do we, how do we get them into our workplaces and how do we collaborate with governments on, on how we get this thing, this out and, you know, Suncor and some of the other Royal Sands companies with vaccine clinics, like we're, we're working with governments to get things done. That's actually pretty fantastic. The climate change challenge requires huge collaboration as well. And if we know that investors are going to be looking for high return, they're going to be looking for high return. So for some of this technology that is not revenue generating, carbon capture and storage right now may be used at some point, but carbon capture and storage does not generate revenue. So it's not going to get built by the private sector alone. It can't which is why you see huge, the Northern Light CCUS project in Norway, huge government engagement in that. The big announcement I mentioned in in the Netherlands, multi-billions of of euros. Um, A recognition that it isn't going to happen because private sectors have an obligation to their investors. We, We simply can't invest or build projects that will lose us money or be to the detriment of, of um, uh, higher return activities. It's, it's the, the nature of the beast. But that collaboration with government is hugely important. And I often talk, so this <clears throat> bit of a roundabout way, Caitlin, to your answer. We forget when we get so caught up in investing in government programs to invest in this startup and that startup, and it's exciting. What those companies need, what those startups need more than anything are big customers. And those big customers happen when big companies like Suncor collaborate with big governments like the Canadian government to say, okay, we, you know, Canada is a leader in CCUS. 
we, we, we built, you know, in Saskatchewan, the Boundary Dam and then Quest in Alberta. And then we kind of stopped. We're at the, on the cusp of, of something really big again. And we're already exporting some of that technology. But the innovation happens when you're, you, you put the money into building and you put the money into where you have customers that are saying, can you do this differently? Can you do this more quickly? Can you do this more cleanly, right? Um, so I, I think they're huge opportunities, but to assume that we're just, you know, corporates are going to do it on their own, it ain't going to happen. We see, so so again, to, into the government policy piece, government has a huge role to play. We saw what happened with the auto sector, right? It wasn't that long ago and the Canadian government gave billions of dollars. Not all of it got, came back, by the way, um, but billions of dollars for the auto sector. Well, we have climate change to deal with. Let's work. Let's figure this out. And, you know, I, I just want to shout out to the federal government right now because um, that federal budget that just came out recently was a huge step in the direction of the answer is not just shutting the stuff in the ground the, because there is global demand and there's going to be global demand for quite a long time to come. And frankly, we want Canada to be a preferred source of, of that. Um, but how do we do it? How do we make it better? How do we how do we uh, make it cleaner at the at the far end? All of those things. Um, but if you look at uh, the United States, has attracted a fair bit of CCUS uh, infrastructure because of their 45Q tax uh, credit, in effect tax credit regime. Um, the federal government announced in the recent budget uh, an investment tax credit significantly increased funding for a number of programs that are really geared toward innovation, but on a scale now in the billions of dollars that actually might work, that might get us to, to, to building some of these things and to allowing that customer driver to say, okay, we're building this and we need this technology and we need, you know, um, so it's a collaboration, and I I really do think. I mean, if you if you COVID has just been awful, but it is actually a silver lining that we have learned just how valuable and effective corporate private sector collaborations can be. This is far bigger than public private partnerships. This is a, a, an attitudinal shift that we're all in this together. Exactly. I think it's one of the things that you mentioned um, in terms of the uh, kind of not wanting to lose money. It's interesting because I think, you know, the carbon capture um, and storage component of it, apart from things like 45Q, right, which are trying to make it uh, more interesting for investors and, and make some of that you know, kind of investment opportunity pencil. Um, what I think is also interesting, and, and this is what I was getting at before, is um, for those who are making investments, right, whether it's the governments or the large corporates who are making investments, let's say in the Northern Lights project, is there a way for the capital markets um, and the systems through which um, investors understand risk and therefore how they price their capital if that can be somehow rewarded, right? So the question becomes, how do you reward people who are making investments in something that are going to benefit? Or how do you penalize people who are not, right? So how do you look at companies or, or countries who are making those investments um, in a way that does uh, overall reduce um, their environmental footprint 
and perhaps make them a bit more resilient to uh, certainly some of the effects of climate change? And can they then be rewarded in the form of lower cost of capital, basically, um, a lower risk profile? So I think that's where hopefully with some of the disclosures and some of the standardization um, that we've talked about in terms of what you all are already doing, SASB and GRI and TCFD, um, if, if that can be helpful to really prove out that thesis, that because you are investing in something that might not be revenue generating right now, and it might just be doing something for the environment that's desperately needed, then is that something that you should be rewarded for um, through things like uh, better ratings, better credit ratings? So I think that well, that's... Well, it, won't, um, it, won't, it won't happen if there's no reward. That's, that's the challenge exactly. we're facing. It will not get built. It will not get explored. It will not get um, uh, done if there is, I mean, this is this is the world we live in, right? There is a market-based aspect to this and a market-based aspect to investment. That fact alone is why governments have to be so much more involved. And, and governments are involved in a lot of other things. Governments have been hugely involved in the vaccination program. If we feel strongly collectively and also wealthy countries, not, not to the exclusion of developing countries, because that's going to be huge, right? There's, a, there's an element of, okay, the reality is not everybody around the world is going to be able to stop using fossil fuels. I don't say that because I work for an oil company. I work for an oil company partly because of a recognition that, that what we produce is actually still really needed and is going to continue to be needed um, let's figure out how to make it cleaner. Let's figure out how to address con combustion, which, you know, 70 or 80% of it is, a, is when it's combusted. That's why I'm so interested in some of these other technologies that are storage. So whether it's CCUS, whether it's in concrete, whether it's in asphalt, whether it's in, well, that's a, that's asphalt's not a good example. Concrete's a better example because it's actually CO2 emissions that get stored. Um, because, the reality is we need to we need to pull emissions out of the air and and they're even you know carbon engineering there's some direct air capture technologies that are really interesting as well so um so caitlin i i, I worry i might have interrupted you there but um no it's no, just such an important <laughs> point to recognize that it, you know what if the, if the if the money's not there it ain't gonna happen unfortunately Exactly. And that's where I think it's just reframing what is the reward, right? Is the reward not being penalized, right? It's, I think that that's the, that's the question. Um, but I'm just curious on one point that you were mentioning in terms of the, the types of technologies, because, you know, we, we've been talking to a variety of corporates. So some of that is not necessarily just on, on the energy side. You know, there are certainly um, areas around uh, building materials, talked about concrete and cement, um, certainly thinking about, um, you know, kind of regenerative agriculture, kind of water use issues. Um, so there's a whole host of, of new technologies that we need to get to, not just for emissions, but general environmental impact. And I'm curious where you guys are seeing and maybe making some investments in technologies that maybe are not yet revenue generating, have the potential to be if they get some of those bigger customers down the road. Just curious where you, where you guys are seeing some really interesting kind of potential for some of those, those technologies? Um, all of them, actually. So we're even looking at some of the regenerative agriculture stuff, um, uh, partly just because of interest, like some of the stuff that comes through our doors and go, oh, that's really, that could be really cool. Um, uh, 
you know, and we, and we have our senior management, Mark Little, our, our whole ELT group. And, you know, the fact that the chief sustainability office is a member of the executive team. I mean, it's not a, an afterthought. These are ki- the kinds of conversations that happen all the time. Um, but they're always qualified with, but we need to be a successful business. But there's that does not prevent looking at some of these really interesting things. So whether it's egg, whether it's potentially director capture, whether it's uh, certainly water. Um, you know, we've we developed over the years a system where we don't need tailings, and we're actually reducing the the amount of tailings um, associated with our oil sands operations, um, close to you know ninety something percent recycling of water, but also just the technology and reducing what we have to actually get rid of. Um, you know, it takes time, but those kinds of, of developments are really interesting because it, it, it is more than greenhouse gas emissions. Obviously that's the elephant in the room, um, but there are other environmental concerns associated with this environmental and social. And so, you know, we're very, you know, the, the ES, the, 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 recognition of ESG as a, as a package of things that are really important is, is I think, you know, it's it's really important because it is the package. It, it is sustainability. It is, you know, the sustainable development goals, right? It's 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 prosperity too for not just the planet but people. And so we have to look at all of those. But I realize, I like Dan. We've just been yakking. We could go. Oh, we can go all day. Sorry, that we've been a monopoly. I was going to draw a thread that's come out, and I think that's something that we've observed at BMO a lot, is this concept of incentive versus penalty. And uh, in lots of the conversation over the last five years, it's been, let's hit everybody with a big hammer. We'll penalize, we'll divest, we'll get into those outcomes. And that's a failed strategy, right? It does not work. And I think the most encouraging thing in the last 12, 24 months is we're moving to the incentive model. And I would say across the CEOs and companies that we cover, uh, we are now seeing people take, you know, and, and think of it this way. We're bragging about how great they are at ESG now. And when you start to say that, and I start to think about, you know, mining companies or real estate companies, and they're now investing in new technologies, they're incorporating them because they believe in a couple of fundamental theses, right? Number one is, uh, let's call them good citizen. Let's start with that. They're good citizens. Number two is they can actually drive down their op costs. And so you think about uh, what's a good example more, the electronic trucking, right? Big, huge, long haul trucks. We're not there yet. We went driverless first, but one day we'll get to, and we're experimenting a bunch of places on big, huge EV trucks. Well, the reason people are experimenting is it's actually not because it's just good for the environment. It's because it's driving down off costs. And as you drive down off costs. Yeah, our autonomous haul trucks. Um, They're not electric, but they are autonomous and they don't have to stop. I mean, in and of itself, that costs way less for the trucks. They are on all the time. It gets foggy. You don't actually have to stop because they're not relying. And ironically, on they they emit less, right? But and they start emit to less see this because we're not stopping and starting. What I've seen, that's right. Yeah. What I've seen around the world now is it be it's become a not a virtue, which it was for a little while. It's now actually a business reality that if I do my business better, we make better margins. My share price goes up. Well, I can tell you that corporate behavior, once you get to the incentive model, goes crazy. And innovation, you think about what we've done in EV vehicles and the speed of development there is probably one of the fastest industrial developments in our history. Um, One of the things I was going to bring up is you think about government and solar. At the beginning, solar was uneconomic. 
today there's very little government incentive in solar, almost nothing. And why? Because from the beginning investment, prove the model, then get to uh, industrial distribution, you can do it in a place where you don't need support, right? That's the kind of thing when you think about carbon capture, it needs to get started, but it doesn't need government money forever. It just needs to get started. And then you need to get the low cost cap. Um, I thought one of the things we might do is let's try and bring Jonathan in. Uh, he's the head of our sustainable finance. And Jonathan, I thought you might touch on uh, a couple of the uh, other industries uh, where we're seeing innovation and how we're responding or the banks are responding, it doesn't have to be about BMO, but how the banks are responding to support uh, that innovation and thank you for watching. Yeah, I think one, one place I'd start is actually in carbon as an industry. You know, we've talked a lot about this from the perspective of established corporates that are thinking about how they're going to address their environmental footprint. But as we look at, you know, companies that are core focused on carbon, I, I break those down into two different uh, vehicles. One are companies that are using the technology of solution, things like Carbon Cure that we've talked uh, touched on a few times, where they are thinking about how they can advance uh, their solution and bring it to the market. The other, though, is pure financial plays. Companies that are looking and saying, how do I bring the financial technology that has worked in other industries and, and use that to bring the carbon market forward? You know, as you talk about solar, that's one where you know the, the term we keep on throwing around is carbon purchase agreements. The, the solution of power purchase agreements that has allowed solar power to become extremely financeable, if there's a way to port that technology, that financial technology over into the carbon world, it, it's possible that we can get you know, the, the acceleration that we saw in the solar world uh, and, and bring it forward faster. The other is royalty arrangements, which are actually an innovation really uh, from the metals and mining space or streaming arrangements, and looking at their, if there are ways to financialize uh, those different vehicles, the, those different carbon uh, projects, and bring the capital in that's needed in order to drive them forward. As we look at how we can bring these different solutions, one thing I am struck by is, as we were talking about that policy piece and the, the penalty versus uh, incentive model, one of the places that we really are going to struggle with an, a penalty model versus an incentive model in, in carbon is the experience curve and the idea of what does a first mover get by going in. And that's where things like the 45Q or the ITC that's been proposed in the budget we see as really uh, compelling in this space because they aren't, uh, they scale in the right way. They provide the capital up front that incentivizes early movers. And we think that if, if these tools really do hit something that is financeable, then you're going to really see people coming in early, driving things forward, and then we can get to those more regular parts of the curve where it is just about piling in more capital over time and, and bringing those costs down until it's just a, a background part of the economy. That's great. Well, thanks, John, that, uh, on those. Uh, I know you're just putting lots and lots of times on how do we innovate. Um, we're drawing to uh, the end with a few minutes left. What I thought we would do is let's go through just a quick question each. Uh, you know, what are you most optimistic for around this conversation in the next 12 to 24 months? Martha, let's start with you. And uh, thanks, Dan. And I, I noticed another another question. How do we reconcile quarterly reporting with the long term? I, it, it's part and parcel <laughs> of the same thing. 
Um, we are businesses. Um, I can tell you around our table, we, we, we don't look at quarters. We're much more year three, five and, and longer. We're an oil sands company. We, you know, it was only ever established because of a multi-decade view of life. So, so we're, we're good about that, I think. Um, but it's an important question. Um, the thing I'm most excited about ties into this whole penalty versus incentive. Um, I think people have, are, are realizing that the importance of the incentive piece, and that's not to sound greedy or anything. It's just to, just to recognize that if you penalize too much, you just put people out of business. And I know, I know that there are some people who would love to put fossil fuels out of business, but that is focusing on supply, not demand. Um, and so I go back to my earlier point. There are millions and millions of people around the world who would love to be able to spend a century. We spend a century in the developed world taking advantage of cheap, easily transportable, easily usable fuel. Um, how do we allow the developing world to develop in a way that assures that kind of prosperity and potential while at the same time addressing climate change? Just shutting the taps off only pushes it off to those jurisdictions that don't care. That's the penalty versus incentive. You penalize people, and I, we've seen this already in my industry. There, you know, the penalizing of people who have too who have emissions that are too high. Some companies just said, "Okay, well, we'll divest." So we're going to divest these high emitting assets. Um, and aren't we wonderful uh, because we're, our GHG emissions profile has gone down? Well, that does absolutely nothing for, for global emissions. Not only that, it often sends those assets into either jurisdictions or companies that do not actually comply or feel the need to comply with some of these disclosure requirements. And so we just have to be really careful over the next 12 months and beyond. Let's not forget that this is a global challenge. And we need to make sure that we remember that not everybody around the world feels the same way. And those returns are going to be there. And if people are going to continue to demand oil and gas, it's all well and good for a couple of wealthy countries to say, well, we're not going to produce, but that's crazy. So I'm looking forward to the increased um, sort of pulling back to, oh, maybe that wasn't the smartest thing to do. So I'm the thing that I'm most excited about is a bit of a, a, a bit of a, the reality check and how do we actually all collaborate to to find those solutions on a global basis. I like that a lot, Caitlin. Yeah, so I would say uh, first and foremost, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you in person at some point in the next year. Uh, hopefully, we can all not be on a Zoom. Um, but no, I think that um, echoing, you know, what Martha said, I think that it's we're excited to see obviously the movement towards better collaboration, as we talked about, seeing corporates working with governments, working with investors, working with communities. I think that awareness, as you started the conversation about um, Indigenous Peoples Month, I think it's it's that awareness where I go into conversations now where 10, 15 years ago, people kind of roll their eyes about ESG. And now, you know, you hear them talking about uh, community impact. You hear them talking about, you know, regenerative agriculture. You hear that you hear people talking so much more and there is much more education and awareness. So just excited for uh, what could come over the next 12 months as, as more disclosures be, come on board and kind of standardization there, how much more education and awareness can, can really grow. So That's great. And Jonathan. 
so I think what I'm most excited about is what I'm seeing in the convergence between procurement, corporate development, and sustainability. And, and Martha and Caitlin touched on it earlier, but the idea that your wallet can really drive innovation and that if you're thinking about your wallet strategically as part of your sustainability strategy and your corporate development strategy, there's an amazing potential to have impact as a scaled corporate on the environment and on your sustainability trajectory while also making money and driving the right outcomes for your shareholders. That's great. Uh, let me say thank you to all those that dialed in. Uh, we very much appreciate your participation. Uh, I think you find this to be a very lively conversation uh, thank you to Martha. Thank you to Caitlin. Thank you to Jonathan. Uh, this will be replayed on the BMO Sustainability Podcast if you'd like to tie into that. And uh, we very much appreciate participation and uh, joining the conversation about a more sustainable future. Thank you and have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.